0: There's a new term floating around today, open-source religion. Recently, the LA Times did a story on it called Divine Inspiration from the Masses. This phrase, open-source, it comes from the computer world. Open-source programming occurs when online volunteers add code to developing software. The prevailing program ends up a collaborative effort that continues to evolve as it gets debugged and as cleaner code gets added. The Linux operating system is an example of open source programming. Wikipedia, the online, everyone contributes encyclopedia is another example. Open source is based on the idea that the group collectively is smarter than its smartest individuals. Well, open source religion applies to the same approach to faith. Rather than make one person, namely God, the source of all of our beliefs and morals and guidance, religion becomes a collaborative effort. Everyone voices their own opinion. Instead of thus says the Lord, truth is the result of dialogue and online refinement and revision, and self-correction. The ultimate authority ends up the consensus of the group. This is Wikipedia applied to religion. It's an any, anyone and everyone's religion. It's a faith that you can edit. You can make your own contribution. Nobody ends up with a monopoly on truth. The only truth is what everybody accepts is true. And that alters whenever the public consensus changes. All of a sudden, the crowd, a.k.a. the mob, knows more about life than God. In short, open source religion replaces the Bible with the blog. Well, welcome to our scary new world. For open source religion is on the rise. It's an example of the old expression, we're so open-minded that our brains have leaked out. Real truth isn't derived from open sources, but from one source. So what if you have lots of sources if they're all wrong? We need a higher source. It is sheer arrogance to think that any one of us, or all of us combined, are smarter than God. Hey, we're not even smarter than a fifth grader. You know, even the brightest folks do stupid stuff. I'll never forget my professor at Georgia State, a brilliant guy. They said he was a genius. He showed up for the first class on the wrong night. I knew it was going to be a long semester, and I was right. And do you really think that lots of smart people combined always get it right? Ever been to the University of Florida game? Here's 90,000 college folks, smart people, mind you, cheering for the wrong team. If human beings have proven anything over the short span of our history, it's that we have the propensity for self-deception. We're gullible, and we're arrogant, and we're error-prone. This is why Proverbs 9, verse 10 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The one stop for ultimate truth in life and in faith is not man's reason, but it's God's revelation. Truth is found in God's unerring, unchanging, undeniable Word. You see, unlike the open source thinkers of today, this was what the Thessalonian believers realized. Paul remembers how they received the Word of God. And this is where we pick it up in verse 13. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is the tr- in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The Thessalonians knew That this good news about Jesus and the book that reports it, it isn't just a volume in the library. It isn't just another selection on Amazon. The Bible isn't just the word of men. It is in truth the word of God. What if we heard a whistling through the air? We looked up. and We saw a boulder barreling through space, coming through the sky at breakneck speed. It was headed straight toward this building. The huge meteorite, it hits the roof and it pounds a crater right down in the middle of the sanctuary. As the smoke clears, we all gather around the glowing rock, watching it pulsating, watching it glow, waiting for it to cool down. And that's when someone notices a metallic envelope attached. We quickly open it. We find it in it a letter and it's signed, Love God. It's a message From God to us. We'd be thrilled, wouldn't we? Oh, we would read it. We would study it. We would spend all our time in it. We would suspend other activities in order to give it our attention. And that's exactly how the Thessalonians treated the Bible. They had discovered the message from God. And they gave it their utmost diligence. Remember now, Paul had just spent spent just three weeks in Thessalonica. Less than a month before his enemies had run him out of town. I mean, how many Bible studies can you teach in 21 days? Yet in a short time, Paul had planted a growing, vibrant, healthy church. How does that happen in such a short period of time? There's only one explanation. The power of God's Word. Take note. The Word works. It is probing and penetrating, and potent. The Word of God has the power to transform a person's life. As Paul writes in verse 13, it effectively works in you who believe. You know, even the Bible's enemies and critics have recognized its power. French skeptic Rousseau, he once admitted, the majesty of the Scriptures astonish me. The holiness of the evangelists speak to my heart and have such striking characteristics of truth and it is so perfectly unparalleled that if it had been the invention of men the inventors would be greater than the greatest heroes when he read the word of god he knew that the bible was of divine origin and yet despite the bible's supernatural source and strength its impact still depends on its reception How you and I receive God's word remains crucial. You see, receiving the word of God is like catching a football. If the pass is a little high, you have to go up in the air to make the catch. If it's long, you need to speed up to get under it. If it's low, you have to dive down to get it. You have to adjust to the word. You have to make the catch with your feet in bounds and Maintain control to prove possession and you'll be covered by a defender. He'll try to knock you off stride at the line of scrimmage. He'll interfere with your vision. He'll do all he can to force an incomplete pass. And this is what the devil does. He too plies his schemes to keep you from receiving the word. In fact, your pastor can be the greatest quarterback in the league. He can zip. Pinpoint passes. He can stand in the pocket under pressure and zip the Word of God with pinpoint accuracy. He can scramble when he gets in trouble. He does a lot of that. He can read the defense. He can find who's open. But it is all in vain if the receiver doesn't make the catch. As with the Thessalonians, it's every believer's job to receive the Word. Hey, dive low if necessary. Humble yourself. Sometimes it takes a leap of faith in order to apply God's Word. Do what's required. When you grab the ball, brace yourself for a jarring hit. You know it's coming. You still got to bring it in. For if you don't receive the Word, even the prettiest spiraling sermon ends up incomplete. And here's what makes a good receiver of God's Word faith. Paul says the Word of God effectively works in you who believe, who believe. That's the key. Eugene Peterson, he talks about his habit of running long-distance races. When he got hooked on 10K races, he subscribed to a lot of running magazines that he read frequently. But then he pulled a muscle, and he had to stop running for several months. He says that during this time, he never once opened one of those running magazines. It just wasn't on his mind. It was only after he was healthy again, healthy enough to run, that he returned to his reading. And that's when Peterson noticed the parallel. He writes, if I'm not living in active response to God, then reading about His creation and salvation and holiness, it won't hold my interest for long. It's simple obedience that opens up my life to a text more quickly than any number of Bible studies. Isn't that true? We're more interested in the Word when we're applying it to our lives, when we're living it out in our relationships with others. Oh, sure, hands will catch a ball, but receiving the Word of God requires a willing heart. It takes a determined faith. It necessitates the desire to live an obedient life. That's its prerequisite. Oh, Paul threw good passes. But you and I, as well as the Thessalonians, need to be faithful receivers. And because of their proficiency at receiving God's word, Paul says to the Thessalonians in verse 14, For you, brethren, become imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. Now I know, I'm testing you ladies this morning with all these football analogies. I Understand that, but yesterday it was a big day yesterday, big football day yesterday. I, I, I apologize. Please bear with me, ladies. Please. because I got one more. You see, we're comparing receiving the Word of God with catching a football. And here is the classic illustration. For when a wide receiver goes up to receive a pass, he can expect to be greeted with a boom! A vicious hit. The opponent will want to jar the ball away. He'll he'll want to dislodge him from the ball. And Satan uses the very same tactics. This is what happened to the churches in Judea. When they received the word, they sustained a terrible hit. It was a helmet-to-helmet blow. The Jews did to the believers what they had done to Jesus and the prophets. They persecuted them. It was physical, and it was brutal, and it was lethal. And Paul is using the example of the churches in Judea as a lesson to the Thessalonians. He's saying, when you receive the word of God, expect a crunching tackle. You know, so often when we're persecuted, we think that we're a unique case. That we are the very first person who's ever been slighted or laughed at or ridiculed for Jesus' sake. Well, Paul assures the Thessalonians that's not the case. The church in Thessalonica had been persecuted for a few months, while the churches of Judea had undergone tough persecution for 20 years. Hey, when we think we have it bad, remember there's someone in worse shape. You probably heard the name Kyle Maynard. People in these parts have. Several years ago, Kyle was a high school wrestler at Collins Hill. And what made his accomplishment so impressive is that Kyle has no arms or legs. He was born that way. He would crawl across the mat on his nubs and stumps. And I can remember reading an article in the AJC about Kyle. It quoted one of his teammates as saying, everyone has reasons to quit that aren't as good as his reasons to quit, and he doesn't quit. (laughs) Hey, and this is why Paul brings up the churches in Judea. He's saying to the Thessalonians, if they're not quitting, you better not be quitting. If they're not quitting, you've got no right to quit. And this is what the Lord is saying to you and me today. When we think we've got it rough, when our family rejects us, or our spouse mocks our faith, or our coworkers ridicule us, or your boss rides you unfairly because of your stand for Jesus, remember the Christians in the world today who've been jailed and tortured for their faith. You think you've got it rough. There are others that have it worse. Think of the Iranian pastor who's been in the news recently, who's been sentenced to death for no other reason than his faith in Jesus Christ. Hey, he's not quitting. I think you too can stick it out. Paul mentions that the Jews in Judea, they not only persecuted Jesus, but they also persecuted us. Verse 15... And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now it's not anti-Semitic to say it, it's just true. That much of what the Jews have suffered through the ages is a direct result of their rejection of their Messiah and their hostility toward the early church. Don't misunderstand, when it comes to the cross, we are all culpable. The Jews, the Romans, even you and me, it was for my sin and your sin that drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. I'm not leaving anyone of their responsibility. But the Jews who rejected Jesus, they do bear a particular guilt. This is what's implied in John 1 verse 11 He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. The awful cry of the Jews standing before Pilate still echoes down the halls of history, Crucify Him, crucify Him. His blood be on us and on our children. Wow, did they really mean that? The sacking of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. The European inquisitions and the expulsion of the Jews throughout the Middle Ages. The pogroms in Poland and Russia, the German Holocaust, even the great tribulation still future is part of God's answer to that infamous request. His blood be on us and on our children. Hey, Paul realizes that wrath has come upon the Jews to the uttermost. God still loves Israel, but their stubbornness has come at a steep price. And let me warn you, all stubbornness comes at a steep price. Verse 17 turns the attention back to Paul and his pals in Thessalonica. He says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. On multiple occasions Paul wanted to visit, but Satan hindered us. I love how Paul expresses his fondness for the Thessalonians. He had been separated from them in presence, but not in heart. Paul was a people person. He loved his peeps, especially these Thessalonians. Understand, it wasn't enough for Paul to see these folks come to faith. He wanted them to continue in their faith, to grow stronger in their faith. This is our desire here at Calvary Chapel. This is why we're launching our getting started class. We want everyone who's new to Calvary Chapel or new to their faith to sink deep roots. We want you to lay a good foundation. We want you to become a healthy and growing Christian. In the next few weeks, next Sunday morning, we'll be starting our our class. You see, now that you've received the catch, we want you to run with the ball. And this was also Paul's desire for the Thessalonians. He truly loved these new believers. He, he, wanted, them, he wanted to go to them, and he wanted to encourage them face to face. Paul was even planning a visit. Apparently, he had mapped out the details. But something hindered his trip, and it wasn't the price of gas. Delta didn't cancel his flight. No, he tells us what it was. Satan hindered us. Notice again, Satan is determined to break up the pass. He doesn't want anyone to receive God's word. (coughs) He'll level a jarring hit or he'll try to sack the quarterback before he can pass. And this is what he did to Paul. He bull rushed him. The exact method Satan used to hinder Paul, we're not sure. But somehow Satan and his demons put up a roadblock to Paul's plans, his travel plan. When you read about Paul in the book of Acts, or when you study him in his letters, you see how constantly aware, how acutely aware he was of the spiritual warfare raging around him. And I've got to admit, this perspective challenges me. For it's not really my natural inclination to see the devil and his demons behind every pothole, and every banana peel, and every bee sting. I mean, in fact, I don't like giving the devil one bit more credit than he he deserves. My tendency is to downplay the spiritual hindrances, but not Paul. No, Paul interprets a simple visit as a spiritual battle. He said, we planned to go, but Satan hindered us. The, The term hinder, it refers to a road so broken up that the travel becomes blocked. Hey, make no mistake about it, we do face an adversary that wants to stop us from receiving the word. He'll even try to sack us if we try to pass on the word. Did you know that Satan can tinker with car engines just to keep you from church? He can run out batteries, he can cause Sunday sniffles, he can force alarm clocks to malfunction. He can lead your kids in little mud puddles right before you try to get them in the car to bring them to church. He can engineer multiple distractions that will stop you from fellowship or from witnessing to a friend or cause you to miss the men's retreat or forget your offering or neglect your morning devotion. Hey, what we're tempted to chalk up to coincidence might just be an invisible skirmish in the spiritual realm. Don't let the enemy block a reception. God wants you to receive the word. And then notice verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? You know, just last week, the St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series in dramatic fashion. I know know you ladies are tired of the football analogies this morning, so I'm mixing it up now. I'm going over to baseball. And afterwards, the team, the Cardinals, they were awarded the Commissioner's Trophy. You've seen this trophy. If you're wondering about this, the Commissioner's Trophy that the Cardinals recklessly carted around the field and then slobbered all over with their stupid kisses is 24 inches high, it weighs 30 pounds. It features 30 flagpoles and flags, one for each team in the league. It's made of sterling silver by Tiffany and Company, and it costs a whopping $15,000. That's why you shouldn't slobber all over the thing. And Paul is asking the Thessalonians here, if that's what you get for winning a few measly baseball games, what does he get? For 30 years of ministry, and a lifetime of faithfully preaching the gospel, I mean, if the cardinals get the commissioner's trophy, well then, what kind of a trophy does God give you? Paul asks that question in verse 19. He says, for what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? And then he answers his question, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Paul's reward for all of his service to God was the Thessalonians. The joy that Paul will experience when he sees the church that he's founded and cultivated, caught up in the clouds, standing with Jesus, robed in His righteousness, with praise on their lips. This will be Paul's reward, his crown of rejoicing. He says to the church in verse 20, For you are our glory and our joy. Understand, when God motivates people, when He motivates us, He does so in three ways. First, there's the fear factor. God uses the fear factor. Fear is a motivation. Unbelievers need to know that there's a hell. They need to be afraid of it. Believers need to fear that they can forfeit certain blessings. It's possible. Both groups should fear God's judgment. Fear is a God-given incentive to live the Christian life. Another motivation is love. This is a higher, a purer incentive, certainly. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, The love of Christ compels us. We all should want to serve and praise and give and sacrifice to the Lord just because He loves us so. And we want to love Him in return. But there's a third incentive that we often overlook. And it's ironic because this is the New Testament's most common form of motivation. It's reward motivation. In other words, God provides His kids a carrot. He dangles a carrot in front of us. And every parent does this. I mean, humans like to get a prize, don't they? Get all hyper-spiritual if you want. Call us mercenary if you like. But God knows us. He knows how we operate. And that's why He encourages us with rewards. When a Greek athlete won a competition, he was awarded a laurel wreath. It was called a crown. It was worn as a symbol of victory, a badge of honor. Actually, the New Testament mentions five crowns available to the faithful Christian. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24 speaks of the incorruptible crown. This goes to a believer who disciplines himself, both mind and body, in order to live for God. This is a great crown. I I hope to get the incorruptible crown. In Revelation 2 verse 10, we find the crown of life. And this has a dual purpose. It goes to the believer who faithfully endures persecution. And in James 1 verse 12, we're told that the crown of life also is given to the believer who resists temptation. Boy, the crown of life, that's one you want. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 mentions a crown of righteousness. We're told this is awarded to all those who love the Lord's appearing. Isn't that great? There's even a reward for rapture watchers. They get the crown of righteousness. And then 1 Peter 5 verse 4, the crown of glory, it goes to the faithful minister. So, Christian effort and discipline, endurance and holiness and purity, a longing to see our Lord Jesus... Faithfulness in ministry is all stuff that God rewards. But here Paul refers to the Thessalonians. He talks about another crown, a crown of rejoicing. And he refers to the Thessalonians as his crown of rejoicing. The folks that Paul led to the Lord and nurtured for the Lord were his reward. In the end... The lives he reached were his greatest joy. The lives he affected. You see, his peeps were what put a smile on his face. The Thessalonians were Paul's World Series trophy. They they were the ones he wanted to kiss and lift above his head and carry around the field and to celebrate. The believers themselves were Paul's prize. You know, before the throne of God, every face... It's going to be cocked toward Jesus. We're going to be engulfed in His glory. We're going to be showering His throne with our praise and worship. But I'm certain that at some point, Paul is going to peek. He is going to look out of the corner of his eye. He's going to see the Thessalonians over there. The Thessalonians. He's going to see them. And he's going to realize... Wow, they're here because of me. And it's going to cause his heart to take a wild leap in his chest. He's going to know that his brief time in Thessalonica had something to do with them being there. These believers are his hope, his joy, his crown of rejoicing. Now imagine you standing before King Jesus and the innumerable crowd in heaven, and someone points to you and says, look right there at Rico. She's the reason I'm here. Look right there at Jerry. It's because of his influence that I'm here in heaven. What if they say that about you? What a rush that'll be. Can you imagine? Paul's reward in heaven, our reward in heaven, will be the presence of the Toms and the Teds and the Bettys, and the Brenda's, and all the folks that we may have influenced for Jesus who will be there because of our impact. It's been said, the only thing better than going to heaven is taking someone with you. And the only thing worse than going to hell is taking someone with you. Here's today's big question. Will there be anyone in heaven there because of your witness? Do you have a crown of rejoicing? Perhaps you've seen the movie, Mr. Holland's Opus. It stars Richard Dreyfuss. There's a scene in the movie that God always uses to speak to me. In this movie, Dreyfus he plays Glenn Holland, a budding composer. He hopes to write a symphony, become rich and famous, and leave behind a legacy through his music. But his musical career doesn't go so well. His dreams don't pan out. Life interrupts his ambitions. Mr. Holland gets married. Financial problems follow. Why does that always take place that way? He gets married and money pressures force him to take a, preaching posi- a teaching position at the high school. But hey, Mr. Holland, he's adamant, man. This job is just temporary. It's just a way to help make ends meet, you know. At night, he rushes home every day from school, and he labors deep into the night working on his symphony. This teaching gig, man, it's, it's just an untimely derailment. He's going to be back on track soon. Oh, but then a mortgage gets added to the wife. And then a child. And then the needs of his students increase the weight of his responsibilities. And then he and his wife, they discover that their child is deaf which unlocks another whole new set of challenges that are now thrust upon his shoulders. He puts his composing on the shelf and he starts to learn sign language. He wants to communicate with his son. He puts his family first. He continues to pour his life into his students. Mr. Holland just figures that his dream of leaving behind a musical legacy is over. At the end of the movie, an older, grayer Mr. Holland, he's fighting the school board. He's no longer the reluctant band teacher. What began as a career detour has now become his passion. Mr. Holland is battling the budget cuts that are threatening to shut down the school's music department. He has spent 35 years now pouring his life into teaching these students and they're going to take it away. Sadly, Mr. Holland loses the battle. The physical physical cuts trump the fine arts. But the final scene of the movie is so moving. School's now out. Summer has started. Mr. Holland has taught his last class. He's retiring. He returns to his room to gather up his personal items. With regret and sorrow and maybe a few tears, he fills his little, fills his little box up with knick-knacks. And as he's exiting the school, Mr. Holland he hears a noise in the auditorium. He swings open the door to find the hall packed with people. A band of his former students, is on stage, playing the music that Mr. Holland taught him, taught them. A huge banners over their head, over their heads. It says, "Goodbye, Mr. Holland." And as he enters the room, everyone greets him, their old mentor, their colleague, with a standing ovation. After his wife says a few words, the governor of the state, a former student of Mr. Hollands, takes the podium. She recounts how a younger Glenn Holland inspired her. And gave her the confidence that she had lacked. And that's when the governor she speaks on behalf of the hundreds of people in the room. She says, "Mr. Holland had a profound influence in my life, on a lot of lives, I know. And yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his life misspent." Rumor has it he was always working on this symphony of his, And this was going to make him famous and rich. But Mr. Holland isn't rich and he isn't famous. At least not outside our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure, but he'd be wrong. I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. The governor, she looks down at Mr. Holland and then she sweeps her hand over the crowd. and She continues, Look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched And each of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. We are the music of your life. And wow, this speaks to me. For there have been times in my 31 years of ministry when I've wanted to pastor a bigger church, a mega church. I'd be lying if I said I didn't. Not for selfish reasons, but a bigger church means more resources, more opportunity to serve the Lord. In fact, recently I've been concerned with attendance figures and financial statements. Over the last few years, the economic downturn has forced us to do more with less. Over the last few months, we've taken a beating financially. It's been tough. Hey, I'm praying more and I'm working harder. These are the stresses and the pressures that you don't see. But here's what I'm reminded of when I study this passage. God doesn't give a crown for large churches or for big buildings or for huge budgets or for new carpet or for more workers. No. When I think of you, the folks who have been saved by God's grace and are growing here at Calvary Chapel, even the folks who have received grace and grown in grace and later moved on, this is why I rejoice. I realize again that the church isn't about nickels and noses and brick and mortar. It's about the souls of individual people. And trust me, in my lifetime, I've had more opportunity than I've ever thought, dreamed I would have or ever thought that I deserved to be an influence for Jesus Christ. What a blessing it's been for me to touch your life and to help you grow. Hey, even if the day comes when we can no longer pay our bills and I go back to my warehouse job, I'll still have reason to rejoice. I will still wear a crown. For as Paul put it, for what is my hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? On the day when Jesus returns and I see you in Jesus' presence and I realize I was a small part of getting you there, I'm sure in that day that will be reason enough for me to rejoice for all eternity. Again, verse 20, for you are our glory and our joy. And I hope this is how you measure your success and corral your ambition. For if your life is all about the new house or the flashy car or the booming entertainment center or your kids winning the next little league game, you'll be disappointed in the end. For God doesn't give rewards for any of the above. Live for material things and you'll have your reward, but it'll be in the here and now. No, God gives spiritual rewards, eternal rewards for our investment in other people. The crown of rejoicing goes to people who care about people. If all you care about is stuff you can count or measure or see with your eyes, you will have missed out on life's greatest rewards. Hey, my crown of rejoicing is my wife's faith and my kids' love for Jesus and the servant heart of the people around me and the spiritual growth of my friends and the salvation of my neighbors. That's my crown of rejoicing. That's my reward. When you depart this life, don't you want to know that you made a difference in the lives of others? that you left behind footprints that led to Jesus. When the Lord returns and we gather in heaven, don't you hope there'll be a few people there who'll say that you influenced them for Jesus' sake? Don't you hope that? Here's what Paul is telling the Thessalonians. When I retire to my heavenly home, I want a retirement gift, but not a gold watch or a crazy plaque or some trophy for my mantle or a travel voucher, or a money bonus. No, he says, the only reward I want is to see you with me. Serving the Lord and loving Jesus and walking with Him. And this is my heart toward you and toward this church. At the end of the day, the reward I really desire is to see you living and giving your all for Jesus Christ. Hey, I'll be happy with that. That'll be my cause of celebration. That's the reason I want to be diligent each week to pass to you the word of God and that's why I hope that you'll humble your heart. And with a willing willingness to obey, I hope you'll receive the word. Even if you take a hard hit afterwards, I hope you hold on to the reception and let the word of God work powerfully and effectively in you. It can, it will. If we'll receive the word.